I'm going to break these babies open. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, so much for the water. <clears throat> if you weren't here in the second service last week, I had a little coughing episode. So um, trying to help me out. Um, Shamir, who helped lead our worship uh, today, gave me a little advice, very good advice at the end of the service last week. She said, Glenn, you really should hydrate. Hydrate more, hydrate. I said, you are 100%, right? You talked all service, she said, and you talked the whole time in between service, and then you talked the whole second service. So I'm trying to uh, get that right. So thank you so much uh, for this. But anyway, today is a, a great day uh, to be together. We want to welcome each of you here in person, also those watching our live stream, and those watching later uh, via YouTube, uh, lots of people watching in different ways, which is awesome. We're really glad for that. And today is a special day. Uh, we're excited to welcome uh, all our moms and to wish you a happy Mother's Day. And since we do this on a regular basis, a little tradition that uh, we don't have a lot of traditions, but this is the one to put moms on the spot because that's what we like to do, put people on the spot. Uh, not really, but we would like to ask you to stand all moms, because I would like to pray for you today. So all moms stand. You won't have to come up here. Don't worry. Somebody's newer, they're like, uh-oh, this looks bad. This is, it's not. I just want to pray for you. We're thankful for each of our moms and for you, and we want to pray uh, together. So let's do that. Father, thanks for this great day that you've given us, and thank you for the mothers here among us, and we just pray, God, that you'll bless them today. Just pray, Father, that you'll work in their lives, that you'll draw them closer to you, that you'll give them wisdom, you'll give them strength, you'll give them stamina, they'll give, give them a, a fresh sense of your spirit working in their lives. Uh, Lord, that you would lead them and show them how to follow you even closer than they ever have before, and that, God, you would just bless their family through them and through all they do. And we thank you for them today. We commit them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give our moms a hand today. <clears throat> uh, just a little note, too. We have a small gift for you on the way out. It's for mothers. We also wanted to include the daughters, so moms and daughters, feel free to grab a flower on the way out. Actually, we'll hand them to you, but uh, just to make your day maybe a little bit better, uh, we hope so, and we, again, uh, we're so thankful uh, for you today. And we're continuing our series now on Me, Myself, and I, which is the Unholy Trinity, and the title of my message today is going, is going to be this. It's Read the room. Read the room. Uh, have you ever been in a situation where you've needed to read the room? Uh, maybe you're uh, leading a business or you're making a presentation or you're do a, doing a sales pitch or just kind of facilitating a family huddle. Whatever that might be, one of the best skills you can have is to actually read the room, get a sense of how people are feeling about things and what they're thinking and what emotions are driving them and thoughts, objections, etc., about whatever you're talking about. Reading the room is a really important big time skill. You look at facial expressions, body language, and all those different types of things. Maybe it's the business person who has to tell the employees, tell their employees that we're moving from the second floor to the eighth floor, and some of them are excited, and some of them are really upset, and you've got to kind of make a way for this and figure out how you anticipate objections and issues and feelings and fears and all that. 
Uh, maybe you're making a proposal to people and you're making this sales pitch and you're hoping it's going over well and you're not so sure because they're just not giving you much back and you really don't know how well it's going. You got to read the room. I remember when I first started in ministry, I was 28 years old, and I was asked to speak at another church, and they were having a retreat, a family retreat. And when I got there, it was uh, several sessions over a weekend, a long weekend. And when I got there, I realized I didn't know anybody at this retreat except the person who asked me to speak. And it became pretty clear that there was this one guy in the second row who was definitely not into it like not into it at all. Like I got uh, no eye contact at all from this person. In fact, their eyes were closed almost the entire first session. I'm like, wow, I, did we lose him? Did, is he, like he's out. He was not, his arms were crossed. He had a little frown on his face. And I'm like, wow, this, this isn't going that great for him. He definitely doesn't like my shirt or he doesn't like me, doesn't, think I have anything to say. I don't know. He was in his mid-40s. I was younger. Maybe that he was like tuning out because I was younger. I didn't really know. Uh, I soon found out, too, that he was a leader at that church. So he was the, he was the choir director years ago, and they had choirs and the worship leader. <laughs> and so he was affecting other people. They were like glancing at him and saying, look at so-and-so. He's sleeping. And it was affecting them. And uh, it kind of impacted the room. So I was up there. I made a couple adjustments here or there and continued to, to plow forward and try to add positive energy to the situation, which is easy for me to do when I'm teaching God's word and trying to help people. It's easy for me to do that because that's who I am and, and what I want to be doing. And it was interesting that it, it was at the end of the second session that there was a little breakthrough moment that I got a tiny smile. It wasn't big, but a little smile, and then back to a frown. But it was a breakthrough moment, and then there was a little more and a little more. And eventually, by the end, I think he might have liked my shirt better. Maybe he liked me better. I don't know. But it went really well, and I think uh, everyone would say it, it was a good, a good weekend, and I enjoyed it too. But the key is, to communicate, you really have to read the room. And this isn't just a communication skill. It's not just a leadership skill. It's also a skill that we as Christ followers need to have as well because we need to read the environment that we're in. We need to read the people and the culture and the society that is around us that we're part of in order to get a sense of what actually is happening, what is transpiring, what can we anticipate going forward. This is a skill that's huge because God gives us tools to read the room. He gives us clues as to what we can expect into the future. He wants us to know what the environment is going to be like for us as followers of Jesus in the days that are unfolding. And he doesn't want us to be surprised by anything. He doesn't want us to be stunned or astonished or weirded out or like this is so unexpected, like it's a curveball we've never seen. He wants us to know what's happening and to be prepared not only prepared to respond, but to respond in the right way at the right moment. And what God sees as he looks to the future is a little bit scary. It's a little bit messed up. It's rough. It's rough because what he tells us is that 
there's going to be this growing momentum towards what we've been talking about in this series. This unholy trinity is going to get bigger traction. Me, myself, and I thinking is going to begin to dominate the room, the multiple rooms, the larger room around us. And we get a sense of this through prophetic words that Paul gives to Timothy. Timothy is a young man when these words are written. He's a young man who's working through this, this journey of faith for himself, figuring it out, how I do this well. And he's also leading increasingly a group of people, and they're looking to him for some leadership, and the church is trying to figure a few things out. And Paul gives some really prophetic words, predicts that an age is about to unfold that's going to get a little rough. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. It says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying, it, denying its power, have nothing to do with them and these vices and this lifestyle and these attitudes. Now, we read that list, and it's like, oh, man, that's, that's some brutal stuff. But Paul writes this and it's important for us to get a sense of these vices and these attitudes because they are going to get greater and greater traction and we're going to see it begin to unfold. And he begins this chapter with an important word that I want to unpack and it's just the simple word, but. It's the first word of the chapter. But in, introduces the idea of a contrast. Paul is drawing a contrast between what he said in the first two chapters and what he's about to say. And he draws a contrast because in the first two chapters, he's talking about the normal, typical problems that human beings seem to have. That we all have problems. We create our own problems. We make mistakes. We do things that we would undo if we could, that we regret. Every one of us is dealing with problems. No one is exempt from problems. No matter how diligent we are to follow the Lord, we're still going to have challenges in our lives. Life will throw us curveballs. And in the first two chapters, Paul writes to Timothy and says, these are the things you're going to have to work through. First of all, you personally, Timothy, you're going to have to deal with some temptation. you got to flee youthful lust because here's the deal. It's tough following the Lord when other people around you don't encourage that. You're going to have a lot of temptations. Walk away from them. It's, it, take the exit door because this will ruin you. You think it'll make you happy. It won't. It'll ruin you. So flee youthful temptations, Timothy. Stay on course. Be passionate for the Lord. And then he says the people around you in the church and society, they're going to have problems, the normal problems. You know, people are going to gossip about each other. And, and Paul says that they're going to get into stupid arguments. Do you know people that do stupid arguments? Paul's telling to Timothy, there's going to be stupid arguments. There's going to be leaders who fail, and there's going to be false teaching within the church. People are going to wander away from the teaching of Jesus and the solid core of Scripture. 
and do other things. These are the problems that you're going to face, Timothy. And then he says, but, but, mark this. In contrast to the normal problems that will happen and the normal challenges and temptations you're, you're going to face, a new day is about to emerge where these normal problems are on steroids, like they get ramped up in a bigger way than you've ever imagined. It's going to be multiplied, and we're going to see the impact in people's lives, in marriages, relationships, and in society overall. These are going to be problems emerging that are bigger and broader and more devastating than what you've seen on a normal basis. And he doesn't want Timothy or us to be caught off guard. He doesn't want us to be surprised by this. So he says, but mark this. Take note of it. Or write it down. Keep it in mind. Don't let this throw you for a loop. Don't let this be a curveball. Make sure you anticipate that an age is coming, and he describes it, that terrible times will come in the last days. Don't be shocked. Terrible times are on the horizon. And Paul says this because he uses a phrase that, that has a lot of background and history. And he uses the phrase last days. Last days meant for, uh, the, in scripture, was generally describing the period of time after the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus, Jesus ascended into heaven after the ascension and before his return, his second coming, there is this period of time which is described in scripture as the last days. That there are scriptures that predict the first coming of Jesus that have been fulfilled, multiple amazing scriptures in great detail predicted the first coming of Jesus. And there are multiple specific scriptures that predict the second coming of Jesus as well. And a lot of people, they said this is not going to happen the first time, and people are still doing that today. This isn't going to happen. Like, is that a Hollywood thing? Maybe that's a Netflix thing, like a Netflix special about, like, God coming back. They doubt, doubted the first time. There's doubters now for the second. But the scripture is clear. There is that first coming and second coming, and that period in between is called the last days. The very end of that period is also a component of this, that at the very end, before the return of Jesus, it's going to be problems and challenges and issues on steroids, that this is going to get bigger and bigger just before he returns. These will be terrible times, and that's why he describes it that way. There'll be breakdown relationally. There'll be societal collapse. Now, when we hear all this, it can feel like depressing. Like, really? I mean, is that, is that really going to happen? Is this something that I should anticipate? I mean, no one really wants to hear about terrible times. We, don't, we build our lives to avoid terrible times. We don't want terrible times. It's like we don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I certainly don't want to anticipate any of those things. But as followers of Jesus, marking this is not all bad. This isn't all bad at all. 
In fact, there's a big time silver lining in this. Because for us as Christ followers, we'll go through this period, but we always, always have hope. Terrible times are never the period at the end of the sentence. It's a comma. There's more to the story. There's more yet to come. We always have a future. Tomorrow, for you and me as Christ followers, is going to be amazing, awesome, beyond even our expectation and hopes, better than we could have planned for ourselves. But in the interim, in the interim, we're going to have to go through hardship. We're going to fare well in the long run, but there's going to be these moments of pain and challenge. It's almost like hearing, for example, that you're sick, and you're going to have 12 days of misery. Like you're going to, you're sick, you're going to have 12 days of misery. You're going to have this like blaring, blasting headache, and you're going to have a fever, and you're, gonna, you're not going to want to eat, and you're going to go to bed, and you're just going to lay in bed 12 days of misery, and you're going to be in your bed, and you can't sleep, and you're restless. You're tossing, you're turning, you're doing all that kind of stuff. You're making the bed super wet because you're sweating so bad, and then you're hot, you're cold, you've got issues, you're really sick. But then, on the 13th day, all of a sudden, boom, everything dramatically changes. And you feel 100% suddenly. And you get dressed. You take off those wet pajamas, and you got regular clothes on, and you walk out, and like, you are a brand new person. And it's almost like the virus or the sickness that you had, the fever that was kind of messing you up for 12 days has not only dissipated, not only has it disappeared, but it's also burned away all the other things that were causing you to be sick, the little things that bothered you, this or that. It's like you come emerging from your bedroom a brand new, completely healed, 100% better person. This is exactly the picture of the life that we can expect. That as we look to the future, we're going to be affected by a sick period in this world. That there's going to be this period of where societal illness will run rampant. It's going to affect you and your family and your life, but that will not be the end. God has something else in store for us. Healing, restoration, wholeness that in the end wins the day. But until that moment, we do have those 12 days of misery. In fact, Paul uses the word grievous in the Greek for terrible times. We're gonna grieve what we see in this world. We're gonna grieve what we see people doing and how they're going off the rails. And you're like, when you love somebody and you see them going off the rails, you're like, no, no, don't do that. Don't take that path. And it's like, it grieves us because we can't make their decision, but we want to so badly. We're gonna grieve the illness and brokenness around us, how life has gone so badly and how so many people are ill. And we're gonna read the room we're going to read the room, and what we're going to see is a lot of people coughing, hacking, super contagious, and there are going to be all kinds of things going on in that room. There are going to be dust-ups. 
There's going to be some fists flying. There's going to be some chairs flying in this part of the room, and people are going to be at it, and there's going to be rampant illness in that room. And here's the deal. No one will think that they're sick at all. They think this is totally normal. I'm healthy. You, however, are so screwed up and don't even realize that collectively we've made things worse. No one thinks they're sick. They don't see it. This is what we can expect. But Paul gives us specifics about this societal illness that's going to ramp up, that we're going to see really get traction in the last days. And it begins in verse 2 with the key phrase to this whole list of crazy things. The first is this, that they, people will be lovers of themselves. This is the starting point for the whole thing. They will be lovers of themselves. And Paul is saying, get ready, because there's going to be a last day's selfishness surge. This is what Scripture's saying. There's going to be a last day's selfishness surge. Expect selfishness. Expect, expect narcissism. Expect this is about me thinking and speaking. Uh, expect about this life to be about the individual and what they look like and who they know and what they think and their agenda and their beliefs to be primary. The me first, me, myself, and I thinking will dominate society. Nations will go to war, even though other nations will say, this is insane, but they don't care. They're going to go to war anyway. Individuals will gravitate to their own interest groups, to their own political groups, to their own racial groups, to their own societal groups, to their own Facebook groups. All of this, they'll go into their own interest groups, and they will embrace only what their own people say, their own group says, their own, their own friends say, and they will reject what others say and the interests of other people. Relationships will crater, and this will create big-time conflict. People will suffer from my-lens-only thinking. That's what's going to happen. It's my-lens-only. I've got my rights. I've got something to say. Screw you. I'll knock you back. I'll undermine you. I'll cancel you. I'll cut you off if you disagree. And it's interesting here that this whole idea of being lovers of ourselves has very, very practical expressions. In fact, in this list, which is just a, a tough list to, to read through, the lovers of themselves is actually a general statement given particular application in all the other words that follow. In other words, everything else that follows from lovers of themselves is a way that being a lover of myself shows up in my world and in my relationships. And so here, this loving self is the key issue. It is the word falutas, which is an excessive love of self. It's self-centered. It is being immensely, immensely fond. I'm so fond of myself. That's what falutas is. And it's a key concept and it's something people will embrace even though bad things flow from it. It's super tempting to live this way because it feels like if I advocate for myself and knock you back, then I win. And if I win, I'll be happy. But what we don't realize is that self-love 
is insidious. It's like polluting the stream that the village drinks from. You know, we take green slime and we throw a toxin into the reservoir that the entire society drinks from and thinks, see, isn't this good for us all? And it's not. We poison ourselves. We make ourselves sick. And this begins to show up, this societal illness, in different ways. Paul goes on to say that love, being a lover of ourselves shows up with a love for money. That's going to be one of the main things that money and material things will become a primary focus, that we will gauge our value on how much money we have. We'll say we're valued based on what we drive or where we live or the things we have or have acquired. We'll begin to, to look at our lives as the, in the pursuit of pleasures, which money enables us to do. And as a result, we'll no longer see ourselves as the owners of resources that God has given us. We will see, uh, we will see ourselves no longer as managers as the resources that God has given us, but rather as the owners of things that we keep for ourselves. And generosity will evaporate. Self-sacrifice for the good of others will become less and less of value. People will be boastful, uh, mean, which means they're going to have some big words. I mean, do you know anybody who's like into big words? They, like, like they talk big talk, big words about themselves. I've met people like that, like, man, you really are, you know, you really know a lot, and you really are a lot, and you're really connected, and you really, it's like very boastful people fill up the whole space with themselves. They're proud. There's lofty thoughts that proceed. The lofty thoughts are really about, you know, what they are about. It's lofty thoughts about how amazing they are. And this leads them to become abusive because now I can put you down because I'm so much greater than you and better than you that I can be abusive towards you, insult you. Um, I don't like you, so I'm going to hurt you. That's the way it's going to be. We see these things uh, playing out more and more. And I think, you know, for Denise and I, we kind of walked into this kind of thinking independently of each other, but we've been married so long now that we, we hold on to it. But one of our pet peeves is someone who thinks they're better than someone else. And you meet people like that. And you're like, are you seriously think you're better than someone else because you have more money, you're more connected, you live here, you drive this, you went here, you did this, you have this, these kind of clubs? You're not better than someone else. We're all human beings. We're all human beings. It's always been a pet peeve, but that is going to be something that gains bigger and bigger traction as people do think that they're better than others, and they're not. They'll be disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. The, the cluster there is about losing this sense of natural affection, even for parents, good parents. Loss of natural affection. In other words, the only thing that's sacred is, is not my relationship with you or, yeah, your mom or your dad, whatever. You've been good, whatever. The only sacred thing is self and what you get, get, get for me and give to me in the moment. Another big piece is that they'll be unforgiving. This is huge as well. This is irreconcilable, unforgiving. In other words, there's nothing you can do to reconcile with this person. 
Uh, basically, they've been hurt in some way, and they're going to hold on to this, and they're going to nurse it, and they're going to kind of go with it, and there's nothing you can do to break through that. They resist every attempt at reconciliation. They're in this moment where we, they reject every olive branch that you might send their way. So you send, you send them an olive branch, and they break it and throw it right back in your face. And it's like they reject every single olive branch. They refuse to call a truce. They want to keep the offense alive as long as possible. And they will cancel you with the encouragement of their friends around them on Facebook and elsewhere. They will cancel you with zero, zero regret. They are proudly, so proudly unforgiving. This is what we can expect in a cancel culture. They're not lovers of good. Why do they not love good? Because good is too demanding. Good is demanding. It means that I need to be good, not just selectively to people that are good to me, but good generally, like Jesus is good to us, like God is good to us, and that's not going to work. I'll be selectively good, and sometimes good, depending what you do, but I won't be good because it's too demanding. Rather than letting that be the, the way I move forward and, and the way I gauge my direction, I will allow my feelings instead to determine my direction because good is way too hard. People will be treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So we read all that, we're like, oh, man, this is some brutal expressions of, of loving ourselves. But, you know, maybe religion can come to the rescue. Maybe religion can do that. And we learn pretty quickly, actually, that's as flawed and broken as anything else. Because there's going to be people, it says, who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. There's going to be people that are using and seeing religion as nothing more than a ritual, nothing more than a routine, something that you do for a, a period of time, and then you go on and live your real life. Religion will become a tool that political people and religious people use to get something for themselves. And we see that even in our culture today across the political spectrum from both sides of the aisle, people using political phraseology and everything else, Bible references and everything else. It's all to get people to vote for them or to garner some kind of support. And they think, I'll just throw these words out there and basically people are just a bunch of dumb sheep. We're just going to throw these words out and they're going to go for it and we'll get our way. And you can expect more of that in the coming days as people use religion as a tool for their own self-advancement. And in fact, self-piety or personal transformation will have nothing to do with this. It'll be lip service to religion without personal transformation. A form of godliness without the power to make a life truly godly and better. All of this is going to play out in the days and weeks and months and the years before the coming of Jesus. And as we read this list, it can again feel like depressing. You know, like, wow, is this the extent of it? Is this, you know, all I can, you know, anticipate? 
I don't know, maybe I'll throw in the towel. Maybe I'll just uh, get paralyzed by this. Maybe I'll just withdraw, move to Alaska. If I lived in an igloo, would that be cool? Yeah, literally, it'd be cool and figuratively, right? It would be both, it'd be both. So we'll do that and just escape this world. If that, is that what we want to do? But actually, no. That God has something for us to do because he calls us not only to read the room, Yes, read the room. Know this is going to happen. Anticipate it. Know that the, the culture is going to fall apart as it wanders from the person of Christ. But we're not merely to read the room. We have something else. We're not helpless. We're not just pawns in a broken, decaying world. We have something we can do. We also need to influence the room, make a difference in that room, bring positive energy, the positive energy of faith, into that room and live in a different way in that room. It means that we're not to mirror the brokenness of the world around us, which we are inclined to do. When somebody does something to us, we mirror it back. Somebody does something, this happens, we mirror it back. When somebody uh, ex exemplifies something or demonstrates something or models something, what do we do? We model it back. God's saying, no, no, you're to lead in a different way. You're to step into this circumstance and not mirror this, but influence the room for good, to bring something, an alternative that the world is not seeing at the time that God wants you with his, the power of the Holy Spirit to bring to that moment, to change the dynamics within that room, to be a true difference maker. And this takes courage. I mean, do you know anybody in your life who's had the courage to change the tone in the room? Do you know anybody like that? You know, somebody that has the courage to live different one, differently. Maybe it's someone who's been hurt who has the courage to say, I'm not gonna nurse this grudge and who throws out that olive branch even though they don't know how the other person's gonna respond. It's the person who says, yeah, I know there's two super annoying people at work. They really bug me, and everybody gossips about them and, and backbites, but I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna add fuel to this fire. It's not healthy. Everybody's kind of losing their mind here. I'm gonna be different. It's the guy who says, I'm gonna fight for my sobriety. Even though my friends don't like it, they want the old me back, they want me to be just like I used to be, but it's been destroying my life. And, and they're giving me flack because I'm trying to have the courage to change the dynamics in my life and in the room, and I want a healthy future for myself. And the truth is, I want to have courage so that maybe they could be changed because they're not seeing their need to change yet. But maybe they could see it through me if I have the courage to change the tone and direction in that room. It's the single mom who keeps getting flack from her ex, and the kids are being used as pawns. And so the ex, the father is constantly throwing poison and, and negativity and undermining things and scoffing and breaking things down and sowing negative seeds and, and mocking them for spiritual interests. But then it's the mom, the single mom, who steps back and says, you know, I'm not gonna mirror this back. I'm not gonna insult them and poison the kids against their father, even though he's doing it to me. And I'm not gonna be like them. I'm going to be different. And I'm not going to step away from the pursuit of faith. I'll set boundaries, yes. And, I, and I'm gonna continue to pursue faith. Even though he mocks it and undermines it, I'm going to church. 
I'm heading to church. I'm gonna keep growing in my faith no matter what he says because I'm gonna do the right thing no matter what they decide to do for themselves. That takes courage. It takes courage to be a difference maker, but that is exactly what God wants us to be. Not the person that exchanges fist for fist, lie for life, undermining for undermining, gossip for gossip. No, but someone who changes the tone in the room. And this is exactly what Paul says to Timothy. I mean, Timothy's a young guy, and he's looking at his life. It's like, man, I want a good future. Everybody wants a good future. We all want that. And Paul's saying, there's gonna be some terrible times. It's like, oh, is that my future? Is that all I should be thinking about? And Paul's like, no, actually, you got a mission. You got something super important that you need to do. And this is where Paul says to Timothy something very significant. Because later in chapter three, there are four words that are striking, that are transformational for the direction of our lives he lays all this out. It said all these things are going to play out. People will be lovers of themselves and do all these things and backbite and be abusive and irreconcilable and all this. But then he says in verse 14, but as for you, Timothy, all this is going to happen. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect the church. It's going to affect society. But as for you, you're to do it different. You're to do it with God's power. It's gonna get tense and stressful. People will make decisions that make things worse, but not you, Timothy, as for you. He lays this out further in verse 13. While evil men and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So there's this whole sense that that. The culture, the room gets to this point where people, again, throwing stuff, dust-ups, fighting, conflict. All this is, is taking place, and they're like, it's not me, it's you. I'm not, I'm not part, you're part of this. And they're all in the same room, and they're being deceived, and they're deceiving others because no one thinks they're sick, but actually, they are. But while all this ha is happening, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Paul is saying to Timothy that although the world is gonna be in this decline, you should ramp up your passion. You should ramp up your commitment to Jesus. You should ramp up your commitment to Jesus' community. You should go fuller, harder at your faith than you've ever, before, ever had before because that is what we can control. And you've learned faith from good people. I want you to take it to the next step. Don't just be part-time or part-way or dabble with spirituality or dabble with church or community or service or all this. No, no, go hard at it because this matters. And you know that in the end, this is gonna yield good results in your life and in society and in your relationships, in the key things in your life that matter the very, very most. He goes on to say that you should follow my example. Paul says, follow my example in this. He says further in verse 10, you, however, Timothy, all these people are gonna make their decisions. You, 
You, however, follow my example. Live this way. You've seen all my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions. Some people don't like this journey. Sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord, he rescued me. 12 days of misery, yeah. That dust doesn't last. The Lord rescued me. And we can unpack this passage of the different things that Paul modeled for Timothy to counter this slide, this last day's slide into selfishness. But I want to look at one word in particular because it jumps out big time from the context. It's the word love. You've heard my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love. And this is really important. It's a key word in this context. And it is the same word in English used in the prior passage, but it's a completely different word in the Greek. Earlier, we were told people will be lovers of themselves. The word love there is philutas. Here, Paul is saying, but that's not how I did it. I did it a different way. My love was agape love, an other-centered love. While people are living for their pleasures, I live to serve and give to others. What we see here, I believe, as the very best way you can influence the room. Be a difference maker. Don't mirror the dysfunction you see around here, around you, and you'll see it increasing. The very best way you can influence the room is to shift from falutas, self-love, to agape, which is other-centered love. Agape is the most prominent and important concept of love in the Bible. It is other-centered love. It is unconditional love. It's saying that you don't need to be a certain way for me to love you. It's basically saying that I'm going to love you as God brings you to me, not as I wish you to be. I'm going to love you as God brings you to me with your faults, your screw-ups, your mess-ups, your really bad decisions, all this. I'm going to love you despite what condition you come to me. And I will pray that God will lead you to a healthier place. But I'm not going to reject you or cancel you because you're not who I think or want you to be right now. And this love is hard because it's not a feeling. We base our decisions and how we interact with people based on how we feel. Love is a feeling. It's falutas. It's a love of self. It's a love of pleasure. It's a love of me getting my way. God's saying, if you base it on that, you, will have, inevit you have inevitable ongoing conflict. But this love is not a feeling. It's an act of your will. You don't have to feel good about someone to do good for, in their life and to sow positive seed. That's hard. But actually, it makes you very much like Jesus. Because he's the one who demonstrated perfectly agape love. Who loved you and loved me, it says, while we were so, so screwed up. That's not the Greek. That's just a new way to say it. While we were yet sinners, Christ gave himself for us. The self-loving God 
of heaven came to this earth to demonstrate his value, how he valued you and loved you and cares about you before you even cared one bit. You were spitting in his face. You got your fist balled up. I'm doing it my way. And God said, I'm gonna accept you the way you are, but you're not good there. I love you. I'm gonna die for you while you're still sinning, but I'm gonna work and pray and offer and invite a way better way that I really hope that you take. The bottom line here is that self-love always leads to brokenness in the room, strain, strife, anxiety, conflict, drama. Do you have a lot of drama in your life? You dealing with drama? At the core of drama is how we get in the way of stuff. We can live in, in self-willed ways. Loving our ideas in self can cause that a lot of drama because other people don't like it and they fight back. Sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. But we have something we can do. We can read the room. Recognize that this is going to get amped up it's going to affect us. We should not be surprised by it. And we should not be depressed by it or despondent in the least because there's something we get to do. We get to offer an alternative that is life-transforming, society's transformed right before our eyes and communities are renewed because we're reading the room and also saying, I'm gonna use my energy to passionately influence the room, help someone come to Christ demonstrate Christ-likeness in a world where we don't see it a whole lot. Because when we pursue the right things, when we refuse to mirror what everybody else is doing, we can be that alternative that changes everything. Let's pray.